Hope maybe you do, or you got a smartphone with you. If you'll turn with me to the Gospel of John, uh, we're going to be looking into chapter 7 about prepare your cup. Now, I uh, brought my cup with me. This is a Florida Baptist children's home and one more child cup. So, uh, and so this is one of the, the ministry partners that we've got here at, at First Baptist Bradenton. And, uh, and so I, I brought my cup with me. Normally, on uh, any given morning hour, I will have a, a coffee cup with me uh, with coffee in it, which I also call my antipsychotic medicine. So I always have that nearby for the protection of our church staff and everybody around me. And, and, but what I have discovered about cups is, uh, is as much as I would like to be able to carry one of these coffee mugs around, and, and that it just would magically always have coffee in it, it doesn't work that way. I mean, I can speak to it, I can talk to it, I can be nice to it, I can, you know, wash it and keep it nice and clean and keep all of the stains out of it, try to keep it happy. But no matter what I do, it does not just magically have coffee or anything else inside of it. Instead, it, it is there just simply to do this. It's just there to receive. It can't make liquid on its own. It can't fill itself up. Instead, it only can... Here, I don't need that. Um, That will be the funniest thing that happened to you all day long. Instead, that's all it can do. It, It can sit there and it can receive. It can't produce anything on its own. In in the Gospel of John chapter 7, Jesus himself is going to communicate something to us that is incredibly important for us to be ready that we want to prepare our cups, that we want to be able to receive this. So here in in John chapter 7, verse 37, I'm going to pick up from the story that I started a couple of Sundays ago here where Jesus has come in during this great festival of shelters that the Jewish people uh, had, had been practicing now to this point about 1,470 years. And it says here in John chapter 7, verse 37, he says, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, there's a lot of had not yet been going on in this passage. And and so just a reminder as to what's happening here when Jesus arrives on the scene. At the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus is in his hometown. His own uh, brothers of his own family, the sons of Mary and Joseph, uh, are basically kind of taunting him, saying, well, if, if you are this great prophet, then you should be doing all of your miracles publicly so that everybody can see you if you really are who you say that you are. But, they, but John, as he's writing the gospel, makes the commentary, but they really didn't believe. And so they went to the festival of shelter. So they all went to Jerusalem. This is one week out of the year where the Jewish people would build tents there lining the streets or out in the fields around the city of Jerusalem. They would leave their houses for a week and they would camp out 
And they basically had a seven and, and then eventually an eight. By the time we get to the time of Jesus, they had added on a day. They had an eight-day religious festival in order to remember what had happened to them during the Exodus wanderings, that while they were in the wilderness 1,470-some-odd years earlier, while they were in the wilderness, that God always provided for them, even though they were rebellious people, even though that they were cantankerous, even though they complained, even though they didn't do right, God still provided for them. And so they had this week-long celebration uh, uh, that of remembering God has always provided for us, and God is going to send a Messiah. He's going to send a Savior to us. Well, one of the things that would happen during this festival of shelters, or depending on the translation you have, it's also translated in the English language as uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. Uh, one of the things that always happened is every day the priests would leave the temple and they would go to this one particular pool called the Pool of Siloam with this golden vessel. And they would go and they would fill up that vessel filled with water, and they'd have this big parade as they would walk back to the temple. And while they were walking back to the temple, they would all recite together Psalms 113 through 118. They had, the people would have memorized these psalms that, that we've got in our Old Testament, and they would, they would chant these songs as they would go back to the temple. And the priest would go into the, the place of worship where the altar was, and they would pour the water out at the base of the altar, again, as a remembrance that God always provided for us water while we were in the wilderness. Now, while they were in the wilderness, God had provided water miraculously to them through a rock that He cracked open, and, and, a, and a gushing torrent of water came out. And on the seventh day, when Jesus now, during this time of the festival, when He stands up and it says, and He cries out, on the seventh day, they would practice this ritual seven times. They would go to the pool of Siloam and back to the altar pouring out water seven, seven different times. It was, got, you know, this was, you know, kind of an increasingly, increasingly, we want to remember, remember, remember what God is doing. And then they would have this big ram's horn that's called a shofar that they would blow. And so, this is the reminder that God provides for His people, that He provided the very sustenance of life, of water for them. And it says that on this last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and He cried out. So this is not Jesus standing in a corner kind of murmuring to Himself. This is not Jesus huddling up Peter, James, and John, the three disciples that were kind of closest to Him relationally. This is Jesus standing in the middle of Jerusalem, probably close to the Temple Mount, crying out like a prophet in his day, as he was. And he cries out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Well, well who's thirsty? Well, everybody's thirsty. As a matter of fact, when I poured this water into this coffee cup, it made some of you thirsty. Jesus connects their thirst, their, their physical need, along with their memory of what God had been doing now uh, for nearly one and a half millennia to His presence there. The, the people had been remembering that God had provided. They had been hoping for the day that God was going to provide a Savior, and Jesus has burst onto the scene in this revolutionary kind of way 
to say, if you're thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the Scripture has said. Now he's making a huge claim. He's making the claim that he is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. As the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. There is going to be this torrent, this flood water, this rushing, gushing water that's going to flow from you if you will drink from Christ. But then John, the, the, the gospel writer here, helps us to understand exactly what Jesus is talking about, that he is referring to not himself, but the Holy Spirit, the other member of the Trinity of God. And so Jesus, as great as it is for them to have Jesus present, he is, he is pretending for them that there is going to be something even better, that if you will come to me and drink, that it's not just going to be me that you're going to experience, but there's going to be something that you can't even fathom and you cannot even imagine that you're going to experience next. Let me put it this way. The limited physical presence of the Son of God purchased our salvation, but the eternal presence of the Spirit of God applies the power in living out our salvation. So we get both of these. You know, what Jesus is saying is that we get both of this. You get the physical incarnational presence of Jesus on the earth. The Son of God, made in human form, comes down to the earth in order to die for our sins and be resurrected from the dead as the full payment against the sin debt that we owe toward God for all of our rebellion, for all of our unrighteousness, everything bad that we've ever done, the physical sacrifice of Jesus that he makes on the cross in our place satisfies our debt. He purchases our salvation. But then Jesus prophesies and tells us, he, he lets us in on something that we couldn't have imagined otherwise, is that the eternal presence of the Spirit of God is going to apply that power of salvation into your life so that you can live by it. There are times when probably a lot of us have said something along the lines of, you know, I'm in this quandary, I got this big decision to make, I don't know what to do next, I just wish that Jesus would just come back down out of heaven and he'd just sit on the bedside right here beside me and he would just whisper in my ear what it is I'm supposed to know. I wish that Jesus would just come back down out of heaven and he'd sit here across from me at the kitchen table so that I could know what it is that I'm supposed to do. And Jesus intentionally basically says, no, you don't want that. You don't want to have to wait for me to come back down out of heaven. Instead, here's what I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give to you the eternal presence of the Spirit of God in your life. That if you will come to me, all of you who are spiritually thirsty, and you will drink from me, then there is going to be a rushing water that is going to flow from deep within you. And John tells us, and he was talking about the Holy Spirit, that the believers didn't have yet because Jesus was not yet glorified, meaning Jesus had not yet returned back to heaven. And Jesus even said this to his disciples. He, he told them, come near to me so that I can breathe the power of the Holy Spirit upon you. He told them, wait in Jerusalem until power descends upon you from on high. And when Jesus ascended, then the Holy Spirit descended upon his believers, his followers, his disciples. They were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they went forth and they turned the Roman Empire upside down. It is the intent of Jesus to leave after the resurrection so that you and I can receive something that is beyond our wildest hopes and dreams. 
The idea that you, as a human being, finite and temporary in that physical body that you are residing in right now, that one, that the God of the universe would forgive you of all of the grievances that he has against you for how we have rebelled against him and his sovereignty and his kingdom for every white lie and every terrible act that we've ever done, And then beyond that, that he doesn't just forgive us, but then he says, and you know what? I'm going to send the eternal presence of the Holy Spirit to indwell you. It is an amazing thought to us that should be beyond all of our comprehension that God would do this for us. You know, when I think about the Bible imagery for the Holy Spirit, the three words that come most quickly to mind are breath, wind, and water. Those are three ideas in the Scripture that are often associated with the presence of the Holy Spirit on the earth. Breath and wind and water. Now, there are others. There are other images like a dove, a dove descending, a a bird of peace. Uh, There's the clouds, the, the mysterious kind of mist into which we enter into. There's also fire. But all of the images that we find in the Bible for the Holy Spirit, and I think especially these three, breath, wind, and water, communicate a power of nature that is beyond our control. It's something that you can't grab a hold of. It's something that you can't harness, really. I mean, we talk about harnessing the wind for, you know, windmills, or we talk about harnessing the water in order for hydroelectric plants. But we really don't harness anything. We just benefit from the power that is already there. And so it controls. It's not that we can control it, but rather it's going to control us. If you don't think that that the water is going to control you, all you have to do is wade out on Anna Maria Island when a red flag is flying. And then suddenly you're going to be controlled by the water. You're not going to stand out in the middle of the water and say, water, stop. It doesn't work that way. So we don't have any right to demand of God's Spirit that He do what our bidding is. Uh, We don't say what it is that we want the Spirit of God to do because He's the breath. He's the wind. He is the water. These These are powers of nature that are beyond human control. And so instead, we get to submit to what it is that He's doing in our lives. Now let me throw up on the screen here, or ask my friends to, Here are 10 things that the Spirit does. What does the Spirit do? Well, here's 10 of the biblical ideas, and there's more within the Scriptures, and we could tease all of these out. So if you're taking notes, you can jot these down really quickly. I'm just going to read through them. You know, the Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness. The Spirit helps us to understand because the Bible tells us that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked, now, I know that, guys, you look over at your wives and you think, well, not, not my wife, you know, not my baby doll, not, not the girl that I fell in love with. Now, sorry, even her, you know. Now, none of the wives looked over at their husbands and said that, but that's, that's for another sermon. But our hearts are wicked, and so the Spirit has to convict us of what sin and righteousness are. He regenerates. He is the one that brings us to life. When you put your faith in Christ, there is a regenerating moment where your heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh, is is the spiritual analogy that the Bible gives. We find that in John and in the book of Titus. He indwells the, the, the believer. 
He comes and takes up residence within your life. There's never a moment where you need to wish for the Son of God to come down and visit you at the kitchen table because the Spirit of God, as a believer, is always permanently indwelling your life. He seals us. It is the work of the Spirit of God to seal our salvation. This is why our our best understanding of the Scripture is that you and I never lose our salvation. It's because I didn't grab a hold of my salvation for myself. It was gifted to me by God, and the Spirit sealed me in my salvation. And I can't break that seal because, let's just face facts, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And so the Spirit of God is the one that seals our salvation. We are baptized in the Spirit. We see that in Acts chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, And later on in the Gospel of John chapter 14, when Jesus is speaking specifically about the work of the Spirit, we'll see number six that He teaches us. It's the Spirit of God that teaches us so that we can understand the Word of God. He empowers us. Uh, Jesus told His disciples to wait in Jerusalem, and that power would come upon them when they were filled by the Holy Spirit. He comforts us in those moments of of great darkness and grief and sorrow in your life. It is the Spirit of God that comforts you. He leads us in all of the decision-making that we need to try to make. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, it speaks about how it is that the Spirit of God guides us, and He equips us. You know, some of you have heard the phrase spiritual gifts. You know, it is the Spirit of God that gifts us or uh, that equips us in order to do the work of ministry, the work of the kingdom of God. This is what the Spirit is doing right now in the life of you as a Christian. It's not that He's doing one or two of these things. He's active doing this and, and a whole lot more that the Bible describes for us. When Jesus stands up on the last day of the festival of shelters and cries out to the crowd, if any of you are thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and and out of the very depth of your body, out of the depth of your soul, streams of living water are going to spring forth. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. This is the work that the Spirit does in our lives. Sometimes we, we get wrapped up in the temptation that the adversary keeps throwing out that God is not doing enough for you. This is the first temptation that Adam and Eve faced, the first temptation that humanity faced. God is holding out on you. He's given you all of this garden, Adam and Eve. He's given all of this stuff to you to provide for you, but He's holding out. You know, there's one thing that He doesn't want you to have. There's one thing that He's hiding from you. There's one thing. And, and when we give in to that temptation, that's when we suddenly say, well, God's not doing enough for me. And all you have to do is just read through Philip Nation's non-exhaustive 10-point you know, slide of, of some of the stuff, some major stuff that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, and suddenly it would be foolish for us to say, God's not doing enough for me. God is doing an immense amount of work for us and in us and through us moment by moment, by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So then the question comes, how do we receive? Because I can't demand that the Spirit do any of these things. I can't command the Spirit. I don't, you know, somehow dictate to the Spirit like I'm the the Holy Spirit's parent. We don't demand or will the work of the Spirit, but rather from the Holy Spirit we receive the breath of life. 
We set our sails in order to ride the wild winds of the Holy Spirit. We have to have our cup ready to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And so I want to give you three ideas about how do we receive. Because I do think that though we don't make any demands, that receiving the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit is something that is far more mysterious than we will ever understand, but that there are intentional steps that we can take in order to prep our lives to be ready for the work of the Spirit. And these are three simple things that you can do right now before my sermon is done. One, ask with humility to be filled. You got to ask. I I would, uh, let me ask you about asking. When was the last time that you asked God to fill you with His Holy Spirit? Now, there's some of you that you've got really strong prayer lives, really great devotional lives, that on a very regular basis, you are asking God to fill you with His Holy Spirit. And I want to say, keep doing that. Make that a regular habit in your life where you're humbling yourself before God, asking to receive the filling of the Holy Spirit so that He can do whatever it is that He wants to do in your life. But there's far too many believers that we kind of forget about this, and we drop it off, and and we start to think, well, the Holy Spirit work in people's lives is that weird stuff that I see on odd, you know, religious events on television where people are falling out, and I don't know all about that kind of stuff. But the Holy Spirit, the work that He does in our lives is for our benefit and for God's glory and the expansion of God's kingdom. And so we need to humbly submit ourselves. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is a command to be passive. It is the command to be passive before the Lord so that He can fill us. Because this coffee cup, if I had already filled it with coffee, I couldn't have put water in it. So you've got to make sure that your cup is ready to receive the Holy Spirit, which means you're not trying to fill up your spiritual life with all sorts of other stuff. Instead, allow the Holy Spirit, the space in your life, be humble before Him that you only want Him to fill your life. Secondly, worship with the acknowledgement of His sovereignty. You should worship Him actively, acknowledging the sovereignty of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your life. Now, when I say worship with acknowledgement, I don't mean worship. There's not one particular form of worship I'm asking you to take, but this activity in your life, whether it is privately in your own personal devotions at the kitchen table or in your favorite chair at home, or whether it's when the, when the people of God gather together in, on Sunday mornings and at various times during the week in order for us to pray together and sing together and study the Bible together, that we need to worship with the acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God, that we are constantly saying to Him, you alone are God and there is none like you. You don't have any rivals you don't have any equals. There's nobody like you, not in the realm of the spirit, not in the realm of the physical. You alone are God and you alone are king. And so I am going to receive whatever it is that the spirit has for me in my life. It it helps us to guard against 
any kind of random, weird, preferential thoughts that we start to have because we're here to lift up the name of Jesus and to acknowledge His great work in us. And number three, submit. Submit in discipleship for His equipping. You know, this is where the Spirit of God oftentimes is working in our lives as well, is when we are allowing Him to equip us for the work of ministry through the discipling work of the church, the way that He works through the public proclamation of the Word of God, the way that He works through the private conversations that you have with other believers of encouraging one another, of, of spurring one another on. There's one particular verse in the New Testament that is translated that we need to provoke one another to love and good deeds, you know, that, that we're helping to move one another along in our discipleship so that God can work through us and in us, that the Spirit can fill us. And so there is this, this humble request of, of humility, of asking for the filling of, God, of the Spirit in our lives. There's the worship of acknowledging His sovereignty, that He alone is the one who's the King both of glory and of my little patch of earth where I live. And, and there is this submission that through the discipling work of the church that He can equip me. And in our, in our church, that discipleship, that worship, and that humble asking happens both in private and collectively. I mean, it happens when we pray together, when somebody else voices a prayer. It happens when we worship together, when we, we all sing songs together about the, the unstoppable nature of God, about the blessed name of the Lord, about how He is uh, the King that, that, pour, that ushers forth a fount of grace and, and, and blessing upon our lives of salvation, that we can have forgiveness and mercy and grace. And it happens in discipleship. I would just highlight for you that two of the major ways, uh, one that we're already doing in the discipleship and, and one that we're going to start doing uh, here shortly, and some of you got an email about the second one, is through, uh, the first is through all of our life groups. So those are, that's the term that I'm using for all of these ongoing Bible study groups. You, uh, we've called it all sorts of different names uh, at, at this church and at previous churches maybe that you've been at, everything from Sunday school to adult Bible fellowship to share groups to everything else. But whatever that primary group that you're in, where you and a group of friends have committed to one another that you're going to be in a Bible study together for a long period of time. You know, a lot of our groups meet on Sunday mornings right here on campus. About half of our adult Bible study groups do. Those life groups, they meet together and they, they minister to one another and they pray for one another and they study the Word together and they, and they help to provoke one another to love and good deeds. They, they provide that place of, of nourishment and of discipleship. And some of our life groups happen during the middle of the week and in people's homes and in other places. But it's that place where you're committed to the betterment of each other's spiritual life because we want to see the, the Spirit of God work in each other's lives. Another way that we can do this is through what I'm going to be calling a leadership development pipeline, where we're going to go through a six-month journey for anybody who wants to be involved with it. We're going to take six months. There's going to be two meetings a month. There's going to be 12 meetings where it's going to be an intensive time of leadership development for anybody who is currently a leader in the church or anybody who just wants to sharpen their leadership skills in life in general. 
because we want to see the Spirit of God working in one another's lives. Uh, We want to see how it is that God might be able to sharpen that blade, uh, help us to have an incisive kind of understanding of the Word, to be able to look up into the world with clarity as to how the Spirit is working in our community and around the world. And all along the way, it's going to take a daily discipline of humbly asking for the Spirit of God to fill us. It's going to take a a constant worship with acknowledgement that He is sovereign, that He is the King of my life, that I have given up control because He is a good King, and I want the Spirit to work in me and through me. It's going to be through the mutual encouragement and discipleship that we have with one another, that we see how it is that God can teach us and can train us and can equip us for every good work that He's got planned for us. The Holy Spirit filling in our lives, it is something that is exceedingly mysterious. I cannot in all the books that I've tried to read, in all the studies that I've tried to do, and in all of the, uh, you know, the hardback theological journals and systematic theologies and all of this stuff that that are in my library and the libraries across the world, there's no amount of human language will ever be able to fully explain what it means to be filled with by the Holy Spirit. It is too big of a concept. We do our best, we read the Word, and and we wait for God to give us an understanding. It It is exceedingly mysterious. But I do think that the Bible is clear that there is a way for us to receive the breath of life from God, for us to get our cups ready to be filled, for us to set our sails in order to ride on the wild winds of the adventure of living by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to invite you that today, that you not walk away saying, well, that was weird. That was kind of cute. And that was a good talk that the, the pastor did this morning. Well, at least Philip put a few coherent ideas together. There's some Sundays that that's all I'm aiming for, depending on how the weekend went. But this is one of those mornings that, like, for real, like, for sure, like, absolutely, this is a moment where you, as a person that wants the redemption of Christ to be alive in your life, that you can say, I want to be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, that that you can say, I want to acknowledge in worship that He really is sovereign, uh, that you can say, I want to submit myself into the discipleship of the church so that I can learn along with my brothers and sisters in the family of God how it is that He is working in us and through us to accomplish His great work in the world. This is something you can do right now. And so if you're a person here today and you think, you know, I've never even started this whole thing. Like, I've heard about Jesus, and I like Jesus, and I think the church is okay, and, you know, it's got weird people like me in it, and so I feel like I get along with these folks. Then, uh, then today might be the day for you that you cross the threshold of faith to say, I'm ready to become a Christian. I'm ready to trust in Christ because He died on the cross for my sins, and He rose from the dead, and I believe that, and I want to repent of my sins and put my faith in Him so that I can be a child of God, that I can be reconciled to God, so that I can have this redeemed relationship with God. We would love to lead you 
in that prayer or just have you pray that on your own so that you can become a Christian along with us. And then for all the rest of us that we've already made that decision, this is the day for you to say, but I want to live by the power that comes with that decision. I'm thirsty, and, and I want Jesus to, ha- to, to cause that, that flood water to come rushing into my life. I want to be filled. And so, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and we're going to pray together. And, and, and while we pray, uh, there'll probably be some music playing. And then after we pray for a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to stand. And, and if anybody wants to make a, a decision about joining the church or being baptized or uh, you, you, need, uh, you would like to pray with one of our pastors or get connected with a, a seasoned Christian person to, to work with about a spiritual decision that you're trying to work through, we would love to be able to to walk with you through whatever that decision is this morning. But, but let's begin by, let's, let's bow our heads together.